Good morning everybody, this is the Isle of Faces. I am Sir Buckley and welcome back for another Valar Revidus slash Scraps and Scrolls. Today we are looking at part three of Clash of Kings. So yes, we're already a third into the book and there is certainly a lot to talk about with our six chapters today. Before I go into that, let me say hello, obviously, and welcome you back to the Isle. Good to have you. And it's lovely to have you with us once again. I'm talking to you from a surprisingly sunny England today. I'm a bit suspicious of the sun. It was very hot this morning. That probably means it's going to rain on me tomorrow. I know how these things work. Now, uh, just before coming, just before starting recording today, I didn't actually plan on this, but I happened to look at my Skype and it turns out that a year ago yesterday was when I made the very first recording for Either Faces way back when, well, a whole year back when, with the lovely lads of Davos Fingers. So that was a bit of a surprise. I knew it was in October sometime, but it didn't really click. And next month, first week of November, it's a year of the Isle of Faces. How about that? We're nearly there, which is a bit weird and makes me reflect a little bit. So I haven't really planned this, and I don't know why I'm saying it now. should probably cut this bit out later, but I think I'll probably do some kind of bonus episode, maybe a Patreon episode about, I don't know, a year of faces and just talk about what's happened in the year and how it's gone and whether I was a complete fool to start this venture 365 days ago, nearly, and... Um, yeah, if I have I improved? Has the podcast improved? Has it got worse? I hope not. I don't think it has. Certainly a lot busier than it was at the beginning. Uh, yeah, makes me think. It's a tiring old process, I don't mind. I'm not going to uh, sit here and BS you sometimes. It's quite hard to get these episodes out. Because I'll tell you true, not a fan of the editing. And I have to edit a lot because I mumble and stumble and uh, I don't speak good, as you can probably tell. So I'm not a fan of that side, but what I do enjoy still is the talking about A Song of Ice and Fire, thankfully. It'd be really rubbish if I didn't enjoy that. And the interacting with all of you. And I guess it's worth reminding, while I'm in this uh, nostalgic mood, that this is a fandom-based podcast. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to do a guest... I say we, it's my fault. I haven't been able to say... I haven't been able to do... A guest episode lately, not since we spoke to Lauren Shakes of Thrones back in July. Purely because I've been too busy with uh, the Castles book, which is... Uh, I'm not going to go through all that now and tell you about what a uh, large stone to be rolling up a hill day after day that is, but it does take up a lot of time and doesn't let me concentrate on either faces as much as I should, so... Hopefully when that is done, I will be able to put a lot more effort into this. And I do thank you all for putting up with me doing that work instead of this and continue to support the podcast. There are things in the works with in terms of guest episodes. And I know the Patreon episode has been delayed. Unfortunately, Lady Buckley has been quite ill recently with uh, kidney problems. Um, but that is done and that will be up soon. So yes, I guess just take this as an apology. You can probably tell from my voice, I'm very tired today. There's a lot of work on 5,000 words for the castle book at like, I don't know, 1am last night. I said I wasn't going to go into it, I won't be blowing it. Point is, thank you for putting up with me and and let me still promise you this is a fandom-based podcast. We do these Valoridis episodes because it's a great way to interact with History of Westeros, which is such a staple of our community, and go along with this reread project that so many of you are involved in so again thank you thank you thank you there will be more from me i promise let's get on with the show and oh yeah yeah maybe i'll do that reflection episode maybe not it might be too depressing we'll see let's get on with today i'm sorry for delaying you 
So our six chapters today, let me tell you, we have Eye of Free, the one where things are just bad in the Riverlands. Yeah, I know there's a lot of them, but this is another one where things are really bad in the Riverlands. Then we have Davos Run. Ah, the one with Davos. Yeah, the one with the fire party down on the Dragonstone Beach. Then Theon One, the one with Theon and all the Greyjoys and Pike and Balon and Aeron and you know the one. Daenerys One, the one in the desert. Yeah. John Two, the really, really short one uh, where they are at White Tree. Really, super short. And finally, Eye of Four. We've got two Eye bookends today. Eye of Four, the one where Amory Lorch attacks and things go bad. So, like I say, <laughs> got quite a lot on today. So I'll try and um, keep this fairly snippy and short. We'll see. I think Aziz did get through a lot of my notes anyway, so that makes my job a bit easier. But let's go straight into Aya 3, which I'm sure you remember is where they've now diverted from the King's Road. They're going around the God's Eye to try and get away from the gold cloaks. And they find this attacked village and they find the, the mother with her arm cut off and the crying girl who is, is, she's later called Weasel, but right now is just referred to as the crying girl. And everything is just a bit horrible. And this chapter is really about going from hearing how bad the devastation of the Riverlands is. Uh, we've had... In the previous two I chapters, they've had the people go past them on the road and warning them what's what's waiting for them in the Riverlands. Now we're actually seeing the evidence straight off. And I guess we did see the graves before, but now we're not even we're past even people having graves dug for them. Now we're just finding corpses and people barely alive. It's like coming up on the after effects of something like Drogo and the Lamb Men from Game of Thrones. We spoke about how that would uh, obviously wasn't a battle; it was just a, a pillage and a sacking almost and to me the, the crying girl w that we find in this chapter is quite comparable to uh i'm gonna have to say this name again unfortunately eroway yeah the girl that daenerys saves in that lazarine village of just this helpless victim obviously their age is uncomparable but this helpless victim who's just caught up in atrocities and do nothing to help themselves and oh, yes yeah, just nasty if you remember last week, we ended on a Tyrion chapter, so we've gone straight from the high life of Tyrion in the in the Red Keep, and he's in a nice room having a meal. I think that's the one with Janos Slint, and now we're gone from high to low of the lows. Eyes on the road, she's sleeping rough, and she's got all these atrocities around us. Now this is a kind of a slow chapter, but I think it's slow on purpose to really ramp up the tension because last Eye chapter we had the gold cloaks riding up and so we know the threat is behind them basically as in coming from behind they are uh, quickly approaching so the fact that their progress is slow to accrual they gotta keep stopping for the wagons because they're not on the proper king's road anymore and obviously that all increases the chances of getting caught or the gold cloaks catching up or whatever so i think this chapter is really purposely slow to make the reader the wrinkles all get real tight about when that threat is finally going to come iris and has a, a quote similar she says I could not help looking over her shoulder, wondering when the gold cloaks would catch them. So there you go, exactly what I said almost. And they go past a lot of men, um, like on the edge of the fields. There's a man up in the tree just watching them, the archer. And it really just tightens that string that makes it seem like things are going to snap. Something's going to go wrong. We're in our third chapter now of Aya, and she's been travelling along. So we know something's got to happen soon and we're really worried about when that is and what it is so talk about these men guarding the fields they're guarding the their food basically the remaining crops that haven't been burnt by gregor and amory lorch and whoever else because food is already running low the effect of tywin's ravaging and the burning of the riverlands that's already taking hold 
consider we're still actually quite away from actual winter so this is all later on when we get to feast and dance and we know about how people are starting to starve because winter is now on its way and what we can assume is going to be a big problem come winds of winter when winter is really here and there's no food we can trace that all back to now when they're foolishly burning their supplies of food because let's also not forget the kind of setup there is it isn't just the riverlands that depends on the riverlands for food king's landing heavily depends on the riverlands a lot of other places that don't farm as well they haven't got the kind of natural resources that the riverlands have everyone's going to suffer because of this it's not just these small villages, although they obviously, they're obviously getting it right now. And they come across this place called Briarwhite, and that's, that's a great example, not only of how the desperate the food situation is, but the knock-on effect that has to the normal the status quo of the place. Normally, being a member of the Night's Watch affords you certain courtesies and certain respect. That's gone out the window now. That might be an 8,000-year-old tradition to look after the brothers of the Night's Watch, and Yoren has certainly been enjoying that for the 30 years that he's been going. But when there's no food around, you're in a pretty bad situation where you can't get any more, that goes out the window. No one cares where you're from. We've got to do away with tradition because we might be dead otherwise. We have to look after the food. So you can see just how this big boiling pot that the, the Riverlands is turning into. Now, luckily, the this little band of Yorens has these two poachers with them, and it is quite good. They're allowed to go out and poach and try and hunt game and they keep coming back they could have run away they're not wearing black no one would know them for deserters i assume but uh, they keep coming back and it's another showing of that black brother unity that we spoke about last time when the gold cloaks came everyone was suddenly banding together and fighting as a unit or not fighting quite yet but ready to fight as a unit we're going to see that later today as well yes yeah, it's, it's just these guys sticking together because one, they need to, but there's obviously some kind of uh, kinship felt at the moment anyway. Now let's talk about Aya very quickly. We're nearly at the end of this chapter already. I said not a lot of notes for this one. But a lot of Aya's inner monologue in this chapter is about dealing with fear. And she's got these lessons from Sirio about how to deal with that. But the things she witnesses, the, the woman with her arm cut off and the crying girl, that's actually almost too much and it just outweighs her lessons for the moment at the minute and she has this nice conversation with her and hot pie together about how they're both scared and it wasn't that long ago they were fighting each other if we remember i won a couple of weeks ago <laughs> hot pie was uh, boasting about kicking the the dude to death and i was having none of that she beat him up um, but now they have to forget that and we spoke back in that episode about how okay you start with the enemy seeing hot pie as the enemy but within a few chapters, I have I was realizing Hot Pie is no enemy. This is evil. This is the enemy here. What the effects of what she's seeing in the Riverlands, and it really binds her and Hot Pie together. And as they are going to be together for another book yet, and kind of become friends in one way or another, it just binds them together as two children caught up in the worst brutality and reminds you what they what they actually are. Now, finally, for this chapter, let's talk about Yoren. He has a great record. He is like. I don't know, 303. Over 30 years, he's lost three guys, and he, he's pretty proud of it, as you would be. Well done, Yoren. Although it does make me wonder, that I think, as he's mentioned, if he's been doing this for 30 years, that would mean that he was doing it during Robert's Rebellion, the last time that the realm was at war. So I wonder, did he experience something similar then? Were people kind of forgetting their courtesy to the Night's Watch then, where they're saying, no, we can't help you at war, you can't have any food, whatever... Now, he didn't have to go drive through as much conflict as now. There was no burning of the Riverlands in Robert's Rebellion. And actually, Yorin, if he was just straight up up and down the King's Road, he shouldn't really come close to any fighting at all unless he was 
maybe nearby for the Trident, I guess. I think I'm right in saying that Roberts Rebellion was fought during winter, so in theory they would have less food and it would have been hard for him, but he doesn't seem to mention that he had any trouble, so maybe it just wasn't as bad. Maybe specifically this burning of the Riverlands, and that's why maybe he's got this confidence that, hey, I've done this for a war before, I can do it again, I can get through this easy. But obviously not. It's actually pretty brutal to hear him talking about maybe he should have left them in the city, and he actually says he, a clever man might have taken a ship. And it's really bad to think Joran downplaying himself, not giving us credit there. I, I think we can say the one-armed woman and her subsequent death, it didn't just frighten the children. Even Joran is, is really seeing their situation clearly now, and he's realised he doesn't have the neutrality to fall back on. He's in a worse situation than he's been in 30 years, and he's not quite sure how to handle it. And it's just quite hard to see him realize that okay let's move on to davos everyone's favorite we all love a davos chapter davos won the one with um, stannis taking out the fire sword <laughs> quote marks fire sword waving it about proving who he is and then davos he talks to sandor sand for a bit another favorite and then he goes back to talk to stannis who's talking about this um sending this letter out to Westeros so let's get into it and like I say I, I think Aziz got through most of my notes about um, Stannis and the small folk and how that's something you wouldn't think of and the little hints we get of Stannis's character in this chapter even after that massive massive crescent, crescent prologue the beginning of the chapter is very much about R'hllor and Azor High and these symbols that Melisandre is insisting makes Stannis the chosen one and why he's the one true king, etc, etc. And like as he said, this, this ceremony is pretty rubbish compared to Daenerys's one, which we know is m much more divine and proper and really just better. <laughs> it's a lot more believable. Uh, but I think in this case, the main purpose of this ceremony on the shores of Dragonstone, it's not so much to convert those around and those watching, because Melisandre's already done a pretty good job of that. She already has Selyse, and uh, Sir Axel is now phoning his lot in, and they've got a lot of Queen's men around. They can do that already. I think this ceremony specifically is more to make Stannis publicly partake and essentially bind himself to R'hllor and her cause, because so far, okay, he's got her there, and he's allowing her to do do her chanting and recruit these Queen's men, but he hasn't actually endorsed her personally. But this is him saying, oh, you know, I am Azor Ahai, I am... This is Lightbringer. We are going forward with law here. And we see this later in the chapter. This obviously works because he includes law in this letter to the, the realm. Now that makes some problems really. And Davos notes it. He says he is clued in enough to realise that the general population, they're going to react badly to this coming of law because it's an aside from the norm. Even if they're not particularly really pious or really, really into their religion, it is just what they've grown up with, and he uses himself as the example. He's not a religious man, but he has been praying to the Seven his whole life, and he knows it's going to be an issue if they try and take Kin Landing or try and take Westeros as a whole and force this foreign god on everyone. We see later Tyrion actually makes use of this. He tries to rally King's Landing around the fact that Stannis is coming with this new god that none of them pray to or don't think exists. So Davos is right. And it makes me think that even if, let's say that Stannis was successful and um, he won King's Landing and he won the realm overall, that would not be the end of his troubles in terms of religion, I think. This introduction of a law to Westeros, it seems to me like it would have easily fostered another Maegor the Cruel situation. If we think of fire and blood, 
when um, at the beginning the Targaryens they were still marrying brother to sister and the faith did not like it and they had those few years after Aegon the first uh, Aegon the first death where Aenys he had the the reign really plagued by the faith and the warrior sons and there's as did Magor, and they had that whole big thing about basically resisting this change. And I think Stannis, even if he won, would incite a similar reaction. We know the Faith Militant come a little bit later in, in Feast, but I think that's what you would see, basically. Like, the Faith wouldn't just roll over. The Faith of the Seven wouldn't just die if Stannis took King's Landing. He doesn't have dragons. He doesn't have... He can't just wipe out anyone who wants to stick to their own religion. He would have this big, divided Westeros and Old Town, I'm sure, would rebel against him and all this stuff. So I would think we would see a, a surge of the faith of the mil faith militant if Stannis were to be successful. Maybe we will later. Uh, currently, as far as the story's gone, he's actually kind of skipped over the faith. He's gone to the north, so it's Relor versus the old gods, and they're actually kind of more, there's more of a duality to them. It's ice versus fire, isn't it? And the seven are just kind of somewhere in the middle. So I'm interested to see what happens, or if anything comes of that, if Stannis really does have to go up against the full force of the faith. We will see. And back to Davos himself. Davos, well, one of my favourite things about this chapter is him talking about his children often. And it's not just this chapter, he does it through, through all of his chapters, but specifically here he's talking about his children often and he really, he really sums up how they're going to move through the class system. Um, he talks about how his elder sons... They they really they don't see the onion on the sigil. He says they really really buy into the fact that they were lords now, and um, because they remember when they weren't, they remember being born to a poor smuggler and growing up in hard times. I'm sure, so they're really into this new life of of privilege. Whereas his younger sons, they're not going to remember that. They're just going to grow up being part of House Seaworth, and his grandsons are obviously going to know nothing of the smuggler's life. So he, he really sums up how kind of social mobility works here and we can see how we see so many lordlings throughout the series who are just kind of jumped up and like living on a trust fund almost type thing where they haven't done anything but they've got this sense of privilege and we can see where that comes from and this is probably also the clearest motive we ever get from Davos about relieving Storm's End he doesn't really talk about it in much detail as far as I remember through his POVs but this is why he did it to improve not his not just his lot, but his son's lot. He wanted something for his his future, and he's he got it. <laughs> Have we ever met anyone who makes as big of a leap as Davos has? He's gone from the slums of Fleabottom to a knight currently, and he's going to go even further pretty soon in Storm when he's named like Lord of the Rainwood and he's Hand of the King. Wow, that's a pretty big. Like that's if you think something comparable, that's like Lommy ending up as a Lord of. I don't know, Lord of the Greenhands or whatever you want to call it. But that's a, a big jump. It's really quite incredible. Even Littlefinger can't match that. Littlefinger had a house and had a, a father of some important a keep when he was born. Davos had nothing and he's made a, a pretty good leap. So well done, Davos. We will now pause for a five-minute round of applause. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Stannis's strategy at the end. He wants to send this letter. He wants to talk to the small folk, which I think as he's spoke about, so I won't go into that too much. But basically, Stannis's unwillingness to just simply overpower current King's Landing, King's Landing as it stands, which was we know from Tyrion's chapter, 
can't really resist any kind of assault. They're just not ready. They don't have the men. Tyrion's chain isn't ready, which we'll get to uh, in chapters to come. Stannis could take the capital, Salador San. He says as much to Davos in the inn. But Stannis doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to just take the city, hope for the best, hope that Renly doesn't then come up with his 100,000 people and take it back from him. He doesn't want just flashes of foolish glory. He's not in it for that. He's in it for the long haul. This is a major Stannis note that he's really into his cause. It's not glory like Renly's looking for. He's not looking for praise. He's not looking for friends. He's looking to rule. So he knows he needs to do that from a more concrete position than just taking King's Landing for a couple of weeks and then having it stolen back from him. And the final note of this chapter I want to say is about Stannis notes that Melisandre has her own type of power with this religion. He's seen it with the Queen's men. He's obviously been, obviously been thinking about it by agreeing to partake in this ceremony with Lightbringer. He knows she's got this own kind of power and it relates to that Varys riddle very much about where power comes from. And Stannis is keyed in enough to see that she's got something that he doesn't. He needs all the power he can get right now because he's in a not great situation. So he's going to use Mel and use anything to his advantage. So that was Davos 1. Let's move on to Fion 1. So I'm sure I don't need to remind you. It's Fion coming back finally to the Iron Islands. He goes to Lord Sport, gets picked up by his uncle Aaron, who's now like a, a real... Oh, there's several words we could use for him. Let's just say religious man. A real prophet and uh, gets taken home to pike does not get the welcome he was expecting and kicks off what is definitely one of the best one book arcs of the entire series i think theon's clash arc i spoke about uh, in our first clash of kings episode it is it's near perfect and it's just so emotional and so well written i don't need to tell you you all know this already but um Let's get to it. I'll, I'll, shut, I'll stop waxing poetic about how good Fionn's arc is in this in this book, but safe to say this chapter is one of the best because it really does set up just everything wrong with Fionn and how broken he is, his identity crisis, everything that's wrong with the Ironborn also, and really sets up why he makes all these terrible decisions through the rest of the book. So we've just been talking about how dangerous a factor religion can be and how powerful Melisandre is, and as if George wants to just show us, hey, do you want an example? I'll give you an example. We get transported to the Iron Islands and the religion of the Ironborn and the Drown God. And what a total mess that all is. It's obviously a very bad religion. And it's as if it's not coming through clearly enough to us through Fionn's eyes, we get introduced to Aeron, Greyjoy, the Dampere, to really, really double down on that notion. So this is our first introduction to the Iron Islands. It's the most westerly we've been so far in the the books is almost as far west as we get through the entire series really we get we get this obviously the other chapters on the iron islands uh we get ass's chapter at deepwood mott and just thinking off the top of my head the stony shore and victorian's chapter on the uh, the shield islands that's all we get really we do not visit the west coast very much and what we do see of it is all through Greyjoy eyes we just get to see this one lens really so that's pretty interesting so Fionn, he opens this chapter just being an absolute prick. There's no other way to say it. He, he treats the captain's daughter awfully. He's he's not much better to the captain himself, although we can talk about that guy a different time. But the way he's doing this and the way he's treating both of them, it introduces us both to Fionn as an incredibly flawed man who's got a lot of issues, but also to the way that women are viewed in this Ironborn culture. And we, we could talk about that and other people have for another hour or two 
I don't, I don't think any of us want to get that sad, so I won't focus on that. But it, just in those few pages, we know what Fionn's like. We know what the Iron Born are like, with, not just to women, but in general. And uh, we get a real picture of where we are going. So it's interesting that this is the first time out of the first time for Fionn out of Stark hands in a decade. Basically, he's either been at Winterfell under Stark rule, or he's been riding down with Rob also under Stark rule, obviously. So this is the first time he's been allowed basically any freedom. Hence him trying to have what he thinks is a good time aboard the Miraham and with the captain's daughter. And while he's going back home with his fancy clothes and thinking I'm going to have a lovely welcome, etc, etc, because this is, well, other people have spoken about it enough, this is his big return and his big thing, which he's obviously not going to find. But we should really focus ourselves on what is Fionn's mission here. What's he coming to do? and his his inability to see that it's not going to work right from the beginning. Let's talk about the plan first. So we never actually get confirmation that Fionn came up with the idea to attack Casterly Rock. Maybe he did. It could well have been him. Let's say ba Balon accepts this idea and he says, OK, Fionn, I'll give you some ships and you go and attack Casterly Rock, which we've never really been able to take. We've kind of got Lannisport a few times, but Casterly Rock is a different beast. But go on, you try your best. So let's say Fionn, he sweeps in from the sea at the same time that Rob, he comes in from the, the mainland, from the east, and they make what is a hell of a pincer movement. That definitely would have been something to reckon with. And to be fair, Rob, he holds up his end of the bargain. He does come from the east and he does terrorise the Westerlands. But let's say that, again, let's say that they're successful. And Fionn, I, I think it's kind of laughable that he just thinks he'll be given Casterly Rock for, for this effort. I'm sure that's why he's all in on this idea and it may well have been his own idea because he sees himself winning the rock and being like better than his father in one quick stroke and proving to everyone that he is the best. If it had happened, the wealth, the strength at sea, and the pure infamy of being able to take Tywin Lannister's home from from himself, it would have lifted a lot of the fog from Westeros's eyes and it, w it would have changed everything in this war. If you could prove that Tywin he could lose in such a fashion as this. We know what a big deal it is for someone, for a commander to lose their home position because we see that with Rob in Winterfell later on. It really would have changed everyone's perceptions of um, of Tywin Lannister. Maybe that would have had the Tyrells thinking, hey, maybe we shouldn't team up this guy. He can't even protect his own home, etc., etc. That kind of knock-on effect. So that would have been really interesting. But like we say, pretty much as soon as Fionn gets there, he really should have realised it's probably not going to work. Well, even before he gets there, he knows his father, even if he hasn't seen him for 10 years. He knows the about the iron price and the ironborn culture. He should have foreseen that Balon Greyjoy was not a guy who's going to get into this kind of deal. But even without that, when he arrives, there's all these ships in uh, Lordsport that have been harboured there with long ships and fiance. He should be thinking to himself, hey, why are all these ships massing and uh, what's what's going on here? He insists on asking Aaron over and over again. And to be fair, even if Aaron had just turned around and said to him, oh yeah, we're attacking the north and your dad's not going to listen to anything else, Fionn probably still wouldn't have turned around and just got back home to Rob. But uh, if only he had a last alarm, if only he had had the forethought to do that. Never mind. As if that's not enough, when Balon actually, uh, when Fionn actually does get into Pike and um, you know he's put in the the damp rooms, the mouldy rooms that no one uses, as another insult. When he actually goes to see his father, he goes to Balon Solar, and his his nice silk glove gets ripped on the like a nail or something as he enters the room. So that's a pretty big sign as well. Even can't even open the door without something bad happening to his new image. That's how bad it is for Fionn. 
and uh, we can definitely notice that. Now, I'm not going to go too far into the, like, the logistics and the strategy of taking in the north, but I do think it suffices to say that Balon, he reminds me of the Joker in The Dark Knight, when the Joker's talking about he's, he's like a dog chasing a car and he wouldn't know what to do if he caught it. That's what Balin was of the North. I think even if he did, let's just say he managed to take the whole North, what's he going to do with it? It's just not the Ironborn slash Greyjoy way, is it? It's not their arena, and we can kind of see that after they take it. Balon just wants to conquer something. He just wants a, a feather in his hat, really. There's no forward thinking other than gaining maybe like Deepwood Mott on the Stony Shore, but they. But more on that later as Fionn's arc continues and Fionn actually goes through with this, this war plan. So, moving on to Daenerys 1, the one in the Red Waste, the desert, where Daenerys and her people, they are languishing. It's not going too well, and uh, they do find some respite in Face to Loro, but in general, pretty rough time after the high that Game of Thrones finished on. Well, <laughs> probably not fair of me, the high. Her husband and child had died and uh, she'd been abandoned by a Kalasar. But she did go into a fire and come out with three dragons, so not all bad. Now back in that first episode for Clash of Kings, I mentioned that Daenerys, she really falls back from the narrative in this book. When we had that big push from her late of Game of Thrones, she really became the focus after Ned's execution. So we would obviously be expecting big things from Daenerys and these dragons, and she doesn't really get a lot done in this book, if we're honest. It's taken 12 chapters just to get to her, first of all. And I understand some of that is probably tension building because everyone is seeing the comet and thinking of what it means. So us as first-time readers, we would have been thinking, hey, I, I know there's dragons around now, there's this comet, so what are the dragons doing? What's going on with Daenerys? I want to see, I want to see. And George cruelly makes us wait these 12 chapters to get to find out and find out what the payoff of the dragons being born is. But as it turns out, not a lot. Daenerys she only has five chapters in this book and maybe only one of them is truly memorable with the House of Undying. Other than that there's not really a lot kind of continues from this book into the rest of the series. It's a, a strange arc when you sandwich it between the gigantic world-changing experiences of Game of Thrones and Storm of Swords. Game of Thrones Daenerys becomes Khaleesi, she ends up as basically the head of a whole Kalasar, her dragons are born, <laughs> reintroducing magic to the world, there's not much bigger change than that. Storm of Swords, she becomes this conqueror, she's a liberator, she changes the whole face of Essos when she takes um, Astapor and Yunkai and Marine. and in between that you've just kind of got this weird little trip through the desert and through Calf and the House of the Undying. But anyway, let's get on with it, however strange it is. The Daenerys we find, she's had, she's had to throw herself into this new role as sole leader of these people. She was she was getting into that leader position beforehand, but she had Drogo to depend on then. Now it's just her, and she's also got to be not just a leader, but kind of like a biblical, mystical leader. All these people have seen her walk into a fire and walk back out again unscathed. So she knows they've got a lot of faith and a lot they've invested their whole lives into her they're following her through this desert if she doesn't come through they all die and that starts in this chapter the old man and then there's a child and the horses obviously but she steps up she steps to the plate and it goes to show that strength and growth from game of thrones it's really paying off and i think she back in game of thrones she was always drawing on those dragon eggs to get her through stuff now she's got living dragons to make her even more powerful speaking of the dragons firstly they go past the bones of a dragon in this desert. Makes my mind whir, and I know Aziz would be the same. What dragon is that? Where did it get there? When? How long has it been there? How did it die? We could go on for a long time. But I think it's noteworthy that the dragons, they are growing 
while the humans are withering in this chapter. They're getting thirsty, they're starting to starve, uh, heat exhaustion, the humans are going down, they're starting to drop. The dragons, they love all of this. They're getting their charred meat from Daenerys, they're slowly growing, they are only little. They are flourishing, basically. And Maybe that's because of the extreme heat they're in, I don't know. They come from a land of volcanoes, so the desert can't be too horrible for them, can it? But I think it's that duality that it pushes, both of them push Daenerys further to becoming the dragon queen. She's not only got these failing people that she wants to protect, but she's got the strength of the dragons. So this is real nice uh, double strength at play for her there. A big part of this chapter is Jorah telling the Daenerys the more detailed story of him and then Lyness Hightower. And I think as he's got to uh, most of my thoughts on that. But it occurs to me that Jorah, he doesn't tell Danny about the poaching thing because of her obvious connection to slavery. And I might be wrong in this. He, he Maybe he mentioned it in Game of Thrones. I can't remember off the top of my head but he doesn't definitely in this retelling he's not mentioning the poaching and slavery bit because hey we know Daenerys's feelings on slavery that probably wouldn't endear himself too much to her especially considering the kind of vibe he's trying to give off in this book but if he did want to tell her about it now might have really been the best time because what would she do if she didn't like it she can't just tell him to hey you wander the desert in a, in a different direction now I don't want to talk to you she needs him now more than she's ever, ever going to need him, really. So uh, if he did want to get out of the way, that might have been a good time, Jorah. And speaking of Jorah, it mentions that his hip injury uh, from his fight with Kofo is, is still bothering him. I don't actually think that really comes back again. I could be wrong. I don't think that Jorah's mentioned as, like having a bad hip or a limp or anything in um, in Storm and Dance, but maybe I'm wrong in that. Someone correct me if I was. Finally, for this chapter... I always enjoy finding a, a good old dead city. Face to Loro, you live on in my heart. That's it, it's just a sign of uh, classic fantasy, isn't it? Finding a dead abandoned city. And speaking of dead cities, uh, Aziz did get to this as well, but it's definitely something I noticed. Daenerys joins in on this book's early focus on dead towns or villages or cities that I and John both show as well. And uh, to me, that really sets up the differences between the kind of two sets of POVs we get in this book. We've got Tyrion, Sansa, Catelyn, and uh, Davos and Theon, in a way. They're all on the noble royalty side, whereas, and you know, they're fairly comfortable throughout. They're in the cities and they're in the big camps. They're pretty safe. Whereas the other set, Jon and Arya and Daenerys for now, this will change as her arc goes, but Jon and Arya, they're out on the road so it's again that small ver small folk versus nobles. It's those kings versus who their clash actually affects. It's the two sides of this book. So I find that really very, very interesting. Let's move on to John 2. If this isn't the shortest chapter in the book, I haven't checked. But if it isn't, I would be very, very surprised. It's like a couple of pages. And it's basically just a catch up on the ranging and the, well, the beginning of the ranging. Now this chapter is very important because it introduces introduces us to Edison Tillet, which is obviously the most important introduction in the whole book. It is a hoot to get to know Dolores Ed, but Aziz got to that, so I won't go for it. The biggest thing that struck me from this chapter, because I definitely did not remember this at all, is the the fire in the weirwood tree, or the, the remains of the fire that they find in the weirwood tree. I didn't remember that at all, and so rereading that kind of stuck out was pretty important especially the fact that this fire doesn't seem to have affected the tree at all and that made me get my tinfoil hat on a bit and i was wondering uh, is it ever mentioned that the weirwoods get burned down maybe it is i haven't checked as far as i remember off the top of my head they just they get chopped down all the time when they 
when the first men in the Andals came. I wonder if Weirwood's a fire resistant. Wouldn't that be brilliant if we just found out that Weirwoods are actually fire resistant and can be burned? I don't know what implications of that would be, but I just think it'd be pretty funny. And more importantly, John he feels the power and uh, of this tree, getting his uh, like early warging abilities on, even if he's not really tapped in yet. But I wonder is he feeling that because of the the fact that it's a weirwood tree? Is he fe feeling it because of the blood sacrifice that's obviously happened or potentially happened here? Maybe it's both. Pretty interesting though. Did not again. I I just completely forgot about this. So very interesting and. This mouth of the tree apparently is big enough for a sheep. And in this previous chapter, Danny's chapter, Ricaro, he rides his horse through the bones of a dragon mouth. So there's just lots of tying dragons and weirwoods together in not just these two chapters, but as the the whole book. They're like the, the bookends of great power. And obviously it's that ice versus fire thing that's going to run side by side for the remainder of the series. So George is getting that in extra early here. Now, Dion Mormont, who I've kind of ragged on a, a bit the last few chapters, he's not got much better in this chapter. He He's kind of asking these questions about where have they gone and what, what's going on with this tree. I think really by now he should be putting two and two together. should be looking at these burned bodies, then turning to look at John's burned hand and kind of thinking, hey, maybe they're burning because of the dead people. Maybe these were whites. We, we don't know. But he's just got this unwillingness to look facts in the face and... He's actually got this, the whole camp has got this same unease as when they found uh, O4 and J for Flowers at the end of Game of Thrones of, hey, we we all know there's something not right here, but we're not going to say it because that would make us seem scared and foolish. So that's just, that's just not, if we don't say it, it can't be real. That's basically the strategy that Gior's going for here. And it's not just him, it is the whole camp, and no one wants to admit it. John himself, he, he convinces that, he convinces himself it's their big party scaring off the game. That's where they can't find any animals in the woods. But even though really, like you get a little tick on the back of your neck, it's creep, much creepier than that. This chapter, it's a return to the original question of the prologue, which is sometimes forgotten. Where did the wildlings go? That's what the Waymar and Garrett and Will trio were actually up to in the prologue. They were trying to figure out where the wildlings had gone. So we've returned that return to that and we as rereaders we well know well even as readers that have gone through the prologue we know what's up but the men of the night's watch they should know by now as well and this is one last note for this chapter like i said it's a very short chapter it's john he's looking through the the village with ed and they come in this little hovel see this kind of like little cot thing that's a bed and john he says you call that a bed uh, hey John just calm it alright you'll be calling it a throne after a little while longer in the wild you're about to spend like the majority of a year sleeping rough and sleeping in freezing cold you'd bloody love that bed in a little bit so just uh, check your privilege just a little bit John okay finally today I of four the one where Amory Lorch comes Aya and her little band they've taken up in this hold fast in this abandoned village unfortunately that does not save them battle ensues and Aya is forced to run away. So it starts out, they find this abandoned holdfast and somewhere to um, hide, basically. But before that, they find a dead soldier in the river. Poor dude, he's got some blonde hair tied up in a ribbon. And it, no one really focuses on, on it within the chapter, but it's just one of these thousands and thousands of notes, details in this book and the others, showing the humanity of the, the victims of war. George didn't have to put that in, he could have just said there was a dead soldier in the water, but 
this is a dead soldier who's a human who's got this uh, lock of hair from someone he loves from I don't know his mother or his wife or it could be a daughter we don't know but either way it tugs on the heartstrings that uh, hey, this, this guy's dead and whoever that hair belongs to they probably don't and won't ever know it now their plan at this point is to they've come into this village looking for boats they want to sail across the god's eye now they don't want to go all the way around because it's just firstly a long way they could bump into anyone and Yoren, he has got it in his head that Harren Hall would be a safe place to get to. Or Harren Town, he actually calls it. Because he thinks that Harren Hall is still commanded by House Went. And they've always been kind to the, to the Night's Watch. And obviously it's a, a stop-off that he's used before. Now we know uh, that the Wents do not control Harren Hall now. It's in the clutches of uh, Quegor Kagan. And it's a cruel irony that even... Even if they hadn't been found by Amory Lorch, or even if they had defeated Amory Lorch, they would have probably gone straight onto Harren Hall. They would have walked straight into a Lannister base, uh, believing it to be safe, and it would have been the end. So, really, there's just this horrible feeling of fate over Yoren's whole trip. Whatever he does, it's end. It's destined to end badly. And again, tugging at heart street, at heartstrings that. Even to the bitter end, with uh, with the evidence all around them and the need for stone walls, Yorin still kind of believes that the Night's Watch take no part in a war, even though he can see all around him what's gone on in this village, that they're in the middle of the war, whether they like it or not. Another, just a thought on those boats. I wonder if there's a lot of boats going up and down across the, the God's Eye. I've never ever got the impression that it's particularly busy traffic-wise. I don't think that's mentioned much, but... I Maybe people do, I don't know. So anyway, they go into this hold fast and kind of tuck up there for the night. And then we get the first the first real event of Aya's storyline, four chapters in. This is the, the first break in Aya's act, so to speak. And uh, Amy Lorch and these Lannisters, they come out and they're really taking the uh, the Riverlands on Fire command seriously. They've bothered to burn down a, a obviously abandoned town just, just for the hell of it. Uh, there's, a, there's something I can burn, I should burn it. And that's the... Uh, level of thinking Amy Lorch is famous for. So when uh, when they start coming and battle ensues, I don't know of many things more brutal. And it, there's a good selection of choice in, in this um, book. I don't know many things more brutal than the feeling I got in my chest when the crying girl, when Weasel, she comes and clutches her eye's leg because she's scared about what these Lannister men are coming to do because she's, she's obviously already witnessed it firsthand. Uh, I'm not going to uh, delay and focus on that too much because I do not want to. Anyway, Aziz got to most of my notes on this section, this final section of the chapter where the Brotherhood, the little band of the Brotherhood, they're overwhelmed eventually by the Lannisters, it all goes wrong and they have to flee. It's a really major moment for Aya saving Jack and Agar and the others. And it even says like it's the hardest thing Aya did ever uh, running back into that barn. Even even this, even such a heroic moment, it can't be counted as either purely good or bad. It's George writing grey, as always. Because, okay, Jackin, he goes on to help Ira at Harrenhal. But then again, he might be up to something bad down in the Citadel if we think he's the alchemist. Or something good, we just don't know. And having saved Shaka Nagar, she also saves Rorge and Biter in the same stroke. And they definitely bring a lot of misery to the people of the Riverlands. So it's a real... Uh, toss up is classic George you can't just draw a straight line this means that and that means that so that's good or bad it's, there's too many tendrils of fate running through this chapter and that uh, does it as he's got to really all my notes on that uh, that final bit there you go a pretty pretty diverse 
um, section today. We got two starts chapter starting chapters in Davos and Fion. So we're at either end of Westeros, one on Dragonstone, one on the Iron Islands. Uh, we've got two Iron bookends, and somehow I wouldn't have thought it possible. We had a section without a Tyrion chapter. How weird is that? Yeah, considering how many chapters Fion has, uh, how many chapters Tyrion has throughout this book, I am amazed that actually occurred. But don't worry, because I think there's like three next week. It's real King's he King's Landing heavy next week with Tyrion and Sansa also. So, there we go. I hope you enjoyed everybody. That's a, not as quick as I had hoped, but fairly quick little insight to Clash of Kings. I must now return to my work on the Good Old Castles book, which I promise I will not bore you with. As always, I would love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. It is a fandom-based podcast. Make sure you are following History of Westeros and Aziz and the Share for all their great work not just fellow readers they're just pumping out stuff left right and center i can't keep up i ain't got enough ears and eyes but uh yeah do say hello thank you for your continued support and we will be back soon next week with part four hopefully the patron only episode with lady buckley will be good now that she's feeling better and yeah i might chuck out a uh, year of faces podcast because why not it's not like i've got enough work to be getting on with thanks everybody see you later <laughs>